Old Testament readings from Isaiah 66, part of Isaiah's vision of the new creation. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This will reading from the end of Philippians chapter 1. Whatever happens, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 10th chapter. This is Jesus uh, commissioning disciples to go out on mission. There's this great line in uh, verse 16, which it, this is almost like the, the end of John 20, where Jesus says, you guys, my church, my body, you are not just representing me, but you are an extension of me. You are my body on this earth. This is what Jesus says, or this is the gospel reading from Luke. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one in the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. 
And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. That's one of those readings where that's, we did a revelation reading recently, the same thing. We're like, we should just like shut it down and all leave now. That's just an incredible reading. The gospel reading is. So, uh, Philippians, uh, Paul, uh, writes a letter to the church of Philippi because they sent some money to him when he was in prison uh, by, uh, with, with the guy named Epaphroditus. And he sends back this, uh, it's basically a long thank you note, telling them thanks for the gift and also encouraging, him, encouraging them not to think of him as a poor, unfortunate soul uh, just because he's in prison. The past uh, three weeks, and this week too, we're gonna, we've been talking about Paul's main theme in chapter one, which is the theme of suffering in Christ. <clears throat> and what it means to suffer in Christ. And we're gonna wrap that up this week, and it's gonna transition over to a new theme in chapter two, which is the theme of unity. It's not a hard transition. He's not gonna say, I'm done with suffering. Now let's talk about unity. These two things go together, which you'll see in the text this morning. Suffering in Jesus Christ can only possibly be done in the church of Jesus Christ. It can only be done in, in community. So I'm going to try and turn off my preacher voice real quick because it seems to be, I'm going to talk a little bit softer, if that's all right. It's a little bit less strident. Angela's cringing when I speak right now. So that's my cue to uh, tone it down a little bit. Okay, so uh, this in this reading here, he has, is another transition as he's moving from talking about his own circumstances. I'm in prison. This is what it means that I'm in prison. Transitioning to talking about their circumstances. Here's what he wants from them based upon what he said about his own life there in prison in Rome. Whatever happens, he says to them, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In verse 27, that verse right there is kind of the heart of these next three verses. Everything he wants to say in these next three verses is summed up in this. And the rest of it is just unpacking. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves. What does he mean by conduct yourselves? This is a word that's, uh, it's actually a word that means uh, to be a citizen of, uh, to live in a political state. Actually, the word politics is actually in the word conduct yourself in Greek. It's just a verb form of be a political entity. Live as a citizen. Live as a citizen in the power structures in which you exist. Do you remember why this is important? Uh, because uh, Philippi is a Roman colony. So let me do something we did about a month ago. Philippi was set up by Augustus Caesar to be a retirement city for soldiers that fought at the Battle of Actium and in the Battle of Philippi. And because these were his own soldiers who were extremely loyal to them, he let Philippi be a Roman colony. And if you lived in the city of Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. Right? Not everybody in the Roman Empire was a Roman citizen. In fact, most people weren't. But if you lived in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. This was something to be proud of. 
the fact that you, hundreds of miles away, a couple months' journey away, were actually a citizen of the city of Rome. And there was lots of privileges that went to this. There was lots of uh, uh, public uh, 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 gifts that were given to your city because you were connected to Caesar in that way. I'm very proud of this, right? And so Paul's going to say, he's going to appeal to this pride, live as a political unit, live as citizens in a certain way. This is language they would have understood. They were proud of their citizenship. However, the citizenship that Paul is calling to them is different than the citizenship that they're proud of. This is going to be a theme throughout Philippians, right? In Philippians 4, he's going to say it again. He's going to say, you guys need to know that your citizenship is in heaven, right? Your citizenship is not to the Roman Empire. Fundamentally, you are citizens of the Roman Empire, but your primary political identity is you belong to the kingdom of Jesus the Messiah. You are now less a Roman than you are a Jew. You are a citizen. uh, You are a subject of the king of the Jews. So live as a subject in a manner worthy of, and I don't know what they're thinking that they're going to hear from Paul. Maybe something, maybe it's going to be a civic speech here. Be good citizens. I'm in prison here. I've been arrested. It's okay, but we should still obey the government. We should still be uh, uh, faithful to our civic responsibilities, like paying taxes and keeping the laws. I mean, that's something that Paul could say. He does say that in certain spots. Romans 13, for instance, sometimes at the beginning of his letters, he'll say, Let's pray for the rulers and let's all live peaceably under the rule that God's placed us under. But that's not where he's going with this. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves, live politically in a manner worthy of the gospel of the Messiah. What is the gospel? Here's the connection. Maybe this is weird to think about this, right? Some of you have heard me say this before. Maybe this is weird to think about this. Live politically underneath the gospel. What What does our life as citizens have to do with the gospel? It's two separate things, right? Like, this is our citizenship in the United States of America or in, the, in Rome for them. Here's, here's our relationship to the gospel. These are two separate things. But, but you guys will remember this, that that's not the case, right? Gospel is not a religious word. Gospel is not fundamentally about how you get to heaven when you die. Gospel is not fundamentally about how to have peace in your heart. Gospel isn't even fundamentally about how to get your sins forgiven. Gospel is a word, gospel is not a religious word. Gospel is a word that Jesus and Paul and the rest stole from the secular world, the secular world. The word gospel just means an announcement that a king is ruling. The, the popular gospel in Philippi is the announcement that Caesar Augustus, who is our primary benefactor, is the king of Rome. That's gospel. That's the way the word gospel would have been used in the ancient world. As a very, very political word. Paul co-ops that word and says this, live as good citizens in a manner worthy of the kingdom of Jesus. The word Messiah basically means king, right? You're, in other words, this is what I said earlier, your primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Your primary citizenship is not to the political entity to which you belong on this earth. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your citizenship is with the kingdom of Christ, all right? That's the thing. That's what Paul wants to say here, right? I'm cool being in prison. I can handle that, Paul says, because this is all this stuff is secondary, right? This is, on on one level, me being chained up to this uh, imperial soldier here is political failure. The bad guy is winning. The false gospel is coming out ahead. But I, and I'm, I'm encouraging you guys, Paul says, 
to truly believe the real gospel, to live as legit citizens under the real gospel, believing that all this other stuff is secondary. Whether I'm free, he'll say later in Philippians 4, whether I'm free, whether I'm in prison, whether I'm culturally relevant or not culturally relevant, whether I'm hungry, whether I'm, whether, whether I'm well fed, whether I have lots of clothes, whether I'm naked. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because my primary allegiance is to the gospel of Jesus, to the gospel in a very concrete political entity, namely the church of Jesus Christ, which brings us to this. How do we do this? How do we live as worthy citizens underneath the gospel of Christ? Verses 27 and 28 are going to answer this question. There's three things in here that Paul calls us to do. Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you, three things here, One, stand firm in the one spirit. Two, striving together is one for the faith of the gospel. And three, you are not being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Standing firm in the one spirit. We've all been united to Jesus in the one spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit combines all of us together into this new political entity, the kingdom of God. You aren't. So so in other words, we're in one spirit. What he's saying is this, this is what he's about to say is you, you're not doing this on your own. I'm not chained up to this imperial guard all on my lonesome here. You aren't suffering with whatever that you, is that you're suffering with. Remember, the theme of chapter 1 is suffering. You're not suffering through any of that stuff on your own. You have been combined into a new nation, a nation of priests, a kingdom of God, ruled over by Jesus the Messiah. This is your new political unit in the Spirit. Two, because this is the case, you are to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, the emphasis in this line is the is on the as one. Literally in Greek, here's what this says. It says, stand firm in the one spirit with one soul striving together for the faith of the gospel. One spirit, one soul. One spirit is outside of us. And now it's, it's, one spirit is the Holy Spirit. It's above us. It's underneath us. It's all around us. It's not us. But it's inside of us now, the Holy Spirit. But because of that, what we are, our souls, can be bound together with each other, striving and working together for the sake of the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. This unity in the Spirit is gonna, is gonna be, the, this is where Paul's transitioning, suffering in the unity of the Spirit to the theme of chapter two, which is living life in the unity of the Spirit, which we'll get to that next week, okay? And in the weeks following. But again, here's the faith of the gospel. So striving together as one, in believing the gospel that Jesus is the true king. This is how you end up getting in prison and saying, like he says in verse 16, I'm okay, God actually put me here in prison. This is how you can end up having cancer or going through bad family situations and saying, this is okay. Because you do not belong to the kingdom of this world where bad family situations, where cancer, where being thrown in prison represent failure. Now you belong to the nation of Jesus Christ where all these things are tools that he's using to bring about his kingdom. You can honestly believe this in community. You can honestly believe this new, fresh gospel, the gospel that the new king is here and he's in charge. And what this results in is number three here, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Faith in the gospel, believing that Jesus is the true king, is not compatible with fear. If the gospel is the true announcement that the new king Jesus is now in charge and that he's the king of the universe, then fear is irrational. You know what the reality is behind all the surface stuff. You know that the president is not ultimately in charge, that Congress is not ultimately in charge, that your health is not ultimately in charge. 
that your financial status or your social status is not ultimately in charge. You know that above and beyond all those secondary political things is the kingdom that you belong to, the real reality. So Harry and I, you know, so like a bunch of you, we were all into the blues um, the past few months, right? And so, so we watched, we didn't get to go to, uh, to any of the uh, playoff games, but we watched them all on TV. And then we went down to the parade and we were hanging out and we were real excited. You know, we watched game seven and we were all into it, all five of us, which is strange because uh, Angela does not like hockey at all under normal circumstances. But she was, at, she was, she was there too, like screaming, get it out, get the puck out of your zone and stuff like that, and, and, and yelling offsides at the Bruins and things like that. We were all into it, right? So we, that, that last night we were watching, you know, of course you're super nervous watching Game 7. And of course, like, it, this is, I'm talking to you hockey nerds. In the first period when the Bruins were just peppering, I mean, it was all down in the Blues' end. The Blues had one shot on goal, like, in 14 minutes. And Bennington's making save after save. But the Bruins are just dominating. And the only reason that the Blues are in is because Bennington's making all those saves. So you're like super nervous, you're super nervous. And then O'Reilly scores that goal with a few minutes left in the first period. And then um, Petrangelo scores with like seven seconds left. And they go up 2 nothing. you just kind of breathe a sigh of relief. So we go through all that, you know, and, the, and all the nerves and the ups and downs. About a week later, Harry and I are like, let's watch game seven over again. We had it recorded. And so we sit down and watch it again. It's a completely different experience, right? Because even when the first period when the Bruins are completely in charge, you're not that uptight because you know how it's going to end, right? There, there's no more nervousness because you know the ultimate reality. This is the position that Paul is saying that you are in. You do not have to be afraid of those who oppose you because you already know the final score. You already know that O'Reilly is going to score here in just a few minutes. Just relax. And in fact, your lack of fear, your lack of nerves, your lack of skittishness to, oh my gosh, the culture's turning against us. What are we going to do? Well, let's start a Facebook campaign and make fun of the people who disagree with us. All these things would be a sign to the enemy that you're losing. But instead, your peace, your calm, your lack of fear, because you know that the gospel's true. You know that Jesus is the true king. You know that the Blues win the game. That's a sign to those who are against you that your team's going to win. You know, if we're watching a video of the game, you don't know the outcome and you're a Bruins fan and you're watching me you're watching me watch that game in the first period and you see that I'm just calmly sipping my tea and now you know you already know what's going to happen you already know that the game's over and you're going to lose more on this this is, this is very triumphalistic I know it's very triumphalistic we'll get to some other stuff here in a second that's, that's a little bit more gentle but because of this because of you knowing the end of the game you do not have to have fear another way of saying it this if another way of saying it is this Look, if you guys have experienced the reality that we, by the power of the gospel, the proclamation of the new king, have become one family, and I know that you guys experience this because tons of you are saying to me, I just love this about St. James. I love, you, you, nobody ever comes and talks to me and says stuff like, these programs are just so awesome, you know, or that adult Bible study just kicks butt. Or these are the best sermons I've ever heard. Nobody ever says that. You know what you guys always come and say? I just love that I know people here. Like this is the first, some of, so many of you have said this is the first church I've gone to where I'm like in and out of each, of my friends' houses. Like I'm talking to people for 45 minutes after church. We're hanging out at each other's homes, like talking about the Bible till late in the night. 
That's a sign to you. Do you see what this is? This is a sign to you that a new kingdom has been started. That you're no longer living in the old kingdom. The postmodern kingdom, of course, would be the one where you're by yourself watching TV. You're eating the cold cereal and watching Netflix alone. The new kingdom, though, is the one where God has created this community. One in spirit, one in soul, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is a sign to you that winning is happening. That Jesus is working. That the kingdom is strong. All right? This is, I remember this is another, another example of this. Like not having fear. I remember when I was in high school. So um, so I played basketball. And our basketball coach my junior year, Pastor Mike, used to always say, I used, you, you always knew like when you were in the locker room which team was better than your team. Because he would say before you went out there for, for the layup line and warm-ups, he would say, don't, don't care. Don't, don't look down at the other end of the court. Like just focus on what you got to do. And you always knew that he knew that the other team was better than you. And that he didn't want you going out there and looking at them. You know, they were tall and they were fast and you were going to be freaked out. He would never say that if the other team was a team that you knew that, you, that he knew you were going to whoop. He didn't mind you being calm and confident because you were going to win and he knew you were going to win because you were a team. You were a team. This team here is a sign that the gospel is winning. But there's more to this. Like I said, there's more to this than just triumphalism, right? It's not just that we're confident and cocky because we know we're going to win. It's that we know that God is in charge of who is and who is not going to join us. It's a sign of destruction, our lack of fear to those who are outside the kingdom. It's a sign of salvation to those who are inside the kingdom and becoming a part of the kingdom. And that of God, he says, in verse 28, the end of verse 28, that by God. Perfect, you know, love, perfect love cast out all fear. The other thing that love does is it doesn't just make us cocky. There's a certain confidence that comes with knowing that the kingdom of God is everlasting and all-powerful. It, it liberates us to love those who aren't on our side. It liberates us to actually care and be concerned in a way for people that are opposed to us in the way that you would be concerned and care for somebody who's sick. If there's somebody who's sick and, and they're a little bit, you know, one of your kids are sick and they're kind of grumpy with you, you don't get angry. You're not afraid of that. Your heart goes out to them because you love them. This is what we're called to be as the family of God underneath the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We, because we are not afraid anymore, are liberated to love because perfect love casts out all fear. Okay, now what does all this have to do with suffering? Because remember the theme is suffering. And what Paul is doing is saying, this is how I make it through prison. This is how I can be chained up to this guard and be confident that God has put me here for the purposes of evangelism. Three things here. Suffering is a gift. Look at verse 29. This is a mind-blowing thing that Paul's about to say. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer. So it's been, it's been given to you as a gift on behalf of Christ to believe in Him. Okay, we as Reformation people freely confess that our faith in Jesus Christ comes from God, not from ourselves. We're totally willing to believe this, that our faith comes from Him, that it has been granted to us for the sake of Christ to believe in Jesus. It's harder to say, but Paul goes ahead and says it. The second gift that God gives you, your salvation, and also to suffer for Him. Suffering for Jesus is a gift that God has given you. And again, I said this a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about verse 16, where Paul says, God has put me here in prison for the sake of the gospel. It's a hard thing for me to say to you, right? Some of you are going through some pretty nasty stuff right now. Socially, financially, financially. 
all different kinds of medically. It's hard for me to say here to you, suffering is a gift that God has given you. But that's what he's saying to you. This is a chance. This is an opportunity. This is a gift that God has given you. He doesn't mean that suffering is good in and of itself. Paul uses the word suffering to describe his imprisonment. He uses the word affliction to describe his imprisonment. He's not saying, I like this. He's not pie in the sky. I don't care what happens. I can be half, half, happy all day long. But he is saying that there's something that God is doing here that makes this suffering good. I am crucified with Christ, he says in Galatians 2. I can suffer with Jesus. He's going to say in a few verses later in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know Jesus even to the point of sharing in his sufferings with him. He's going to say in 2 Corinthians 4, we always carry around in our body the sufferings of Christ so that we can also carry around in our body his life. Paul embraces the sufferings of Christ, not because suffering is fun or good inherently, but because it is three things here. And this is jumping a little bit. The first one is jumping a little bit outside the text and getting us closer to Philippians 3.10. It is our connection with Jesus. The only, look, there's one portal to God. There's only one pathway that we have to getting to God, and that is the suffering Jesus. And by knowing the suffering Jesus, by embracing the suffering Jesus, by being able to say that the crucified Christ is the one I've been baptized into, Romans 6, Galatians 2, and by seeing our self-suffering filtered through his suffering, we know that we are, it's, it's, it's not plan B. Suffering is not, something's gone wrong here. Suffering is plan A. It's the way that God has saved the world through the suffering of Jesus and now through the suffering of those who are united to the suffering of Christ. But number two, it connects us to, it connects us to each other. The only way to embrace this is a gift. The only way to embrace verse 29 is to embrace verse 27. To say, Paul says, I can do this because I'm not on my own. I am striving together with you guys in the one spirit for the faith of the gospel. I need to, I, I, I told you guys about this a couple weeks ago. Let me mention it again because this is good preventative medicine. At some point, one of you is going to get really sick. And you're going to say, you're not going to show up at church and I'm going to come and visit you at your house. This happened quite frequently. This happened four or five times, I should say, good shepherd. And I told you about my friend, uh, my one friend, uh, a few weeks ago. I'm going to come and visit you, and you're going to say, you know what, I'm really, really sick. I've got cancer. And people were asking me, like, how, you know, how are you feeling? And it's kind of frustrating and embarrassing, and I'm not looking very good right now, and I'm losing my hair, and it's just hard for me to come to church. And you know what I'm going to say to you? I'm going to say, I need you to be there. I I, I need to see you suffering in Jesus. That sounds cruel, right? That sounds sadistic. I don't mean it that way. What I mean is I need to see you embracing the glory of the gospel in the face of all your circumstances. I need to be reminded that our health is not the most important thing. And the only way I can really be taught that in a tactile and concrete way is to experience you teaching that to me by loving Jesus and embracing the gospel, by suffering in front of me. Don't take that away from us. Don't show up at community group and act like you've got everything together. That's the worst thing you can do. We completely undermine grace when we walk into community group and it's time to pray and you're like, no, no, I'm cool. Everything's going great for me. Wear your brokenness on your sleeve. I mean, there's such a thing as TMI, right? But wear your brokenness on your sleeve. For me to see you broken, Physically, 
emotionally, morally, even your sin, and to see you receive the gift of God's grace and to receive healing and forgiveness. That teaches me more about grace than reading Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, 50 times could ever do. To see you embrace in your body Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Suffering unites us to each other. And finally, suffering gives us an opportunity to bring those, to bring Jesus to those who don't know Jesus. Do you remember when you had kids? Before you had kids and you were like, kids are going to be awesome. I wish, I can't wait to have kids. It's going to be like, you know, we're going to walk around holding hands and they're going to be asking me questions about baseball and Nietzsche and the history of theology and England in the 17th century. And then it's not like that at all. It's mainly, you know, stop picking your nose and cleaning dirty diapers. And you're grounded because you're not supposed to do that and you know that. Right? I mean, I mean, there's good things in there too. I'm, I'm speaking as a fool. I'm exaggerating for emphasis. But, but honestly, parenting is a whole lot of suffering. I mean, it's a whole lot of beautiful things. And sometimes, in fact, most of the time, the beautiful things and the suffering things are the same thing. Why is that the case? Because the joy of bringing a human being to life and to watching them grow up to become a human being, to grow up in grace, to grow in knowledge, to grow in physical strength and learn how to hit a golf ball and play the cello and say funny, interesting things that you never could have imagined yourself. It makes it all worth it. You would never get to that point if you didn't go through the suffering of being up at three in the morning rocking somebody, cleaning a dirty diaper, going to a restaurant because you're going to have just a halfway decent meal and to have to leave because there's too much crying. You would never get to that point. That's where this community of Jesus Christ, living underneath the gospel with no fear, is headed. That's why Paul says, I'm happy that I'm here. I'm willing to do this suffering because I'm chained up to this imperial guard, but this imperial guard's chained up to me. And he's going to hear the gospel. Caesar's household will come underneath the influence of the true king. That's the position that God has put us in. It's a hard thing for me to stand up here and say to us, embrace your suffering. But that's what God has called us to. United together in the power of the Holy Spirit underneath the authority of the King Jesus. We have been liberated to love each other, to show each other grace, and to share the the grace of Jesus Christ with the world around us who can only know God through the suffering Jesus. Amen.